0: ourselves when we're not talking. That way, like there's not a ton of background noise, but you don't need to worry about doing that because hopefully you'll be talking more than us. Okay. All right. Lori, you ready? Okay. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Sarah and Lori today. And we're here with a new Instagram friend, um, Janelle, who is going to share a bit about her story with borderline and um, she's a psych major, which is so rad and an artist. And I think a cat mom, cat, cat parents. Yes. Two kittens. <laughs>
1: yes. If they show up on the
0: podcast, that is ideal. Just so you know, <laughs> Lori is a cat lady through and through. And um, yeah, we're just so excited to have you here today and um, share your story. So Tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, who are you? Where are you from? Tell us a little bit about your life. My name is Janelle, and I'm from
2: Baltimore, Maryland, which which is in the United States. And I am a psych major. I just started the spring of this year, um, and I'm at at a community college and want to um, eventually transfer to a regular college to get a bachelor's degree.
0: Yeah, so you are in your first year at community college? Yeah, going on the second, yeah. Going on <laughs> to your second year. And so you decided to be a psych major probably from your own experience? Yeah,
2: I've always been interested in psychology. And I even took a psychology class in high school and I absolutely loved it. Um, I like the re psychology. I originally wanted to be a child psychologist, but I'm kind of teetering between that or becoming a child life specialist with both of those. I I can do with a psychology degree. So I'm not a hundred percent sure what I'm going to do, but I may be a therapist or I may just be a child life specialist. It just depends on,
0: um, which path I decide to take. Totally. And that path will for sure reveal itself to you because you'll get to play around and you'll have practicums and you'll try different things. And then, um, yeah, maybe you'll be like me. And I, the first six, seven years of my career was in like case management and like policy. And then I just completely changed shift and became a therapist. So the cool thing about getting a degree in psych is you can do a million things. Um, yeah, so were you raised in Baltimore, Maryland area? Yes. Nice. Um, give us just like an overview of kind of like childhood. What was childhood like for you in terms of like life symptoms? Where did you start to notice being a big feeler?
2: I describe my childhood as kind of like chaotic because I I dealt with like abuse, um, verbal, physical, sexual st- stuff like that. I first noticed that something was kind of off when there was a situation where um, it was, I think Christmas or Christmas Eve and me and my sister, we got into like a little small disagreement, but I r- really took it like left, I guess. So, I don't know how to really describe it, but I just started like yelling and yelling. And then that that's the first time I started like, self-harming. I think I was like, um, I may have been like eight or nine. I don't know. I was really young and I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and then like, I dissociated a lot when I was younger and I didn't even know what it was until years later. I would just feel spaced out all the time. Well, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And I would feel like it was, it'll feel like, um, like I was in a movie, like life wasn't real. I used to do this thing when I was little, like look at my hands and, um, just the, um, it was real life. Like it was real, you know? And so, um, so I had those kind of like symptoms. I, I started really feeling depressed, maybe around 10, and 11, um, when I was eleven, the self-harm kind of increased. And my parents found out because a friend, I, I was in middle school in sixth grade, and I had a friend that um noticed like the self-harm and they kind of like forced me to tell the school counselor. So the school counselor called my my parents, they they um were very re- very upset about it, but not upset like like concerned, They more like angry kind of. And, you know, they, and then I remember my dad has said, uh, do you need to see a psychologist? And I said, yes. So I started therapy at 11 and I've been in therapy ever
0: since. um Good for you for saying so, yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then I, I dealt with a lot of bullying in school as well, especially when I was, um, in seventh grade, that was the worst. That was the point where I was getting death threats and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I dealt with bullying. And then in ninth grade, that's when I first started going to the hospital. I basically had went to my therapist appointment. I was 14. My parents, they were going through a divorce at the time. And when they were going through the divorce, it was like a lot of fighting. There there was some trauma in that too. Um, And so my therapist wanted, both of my parents that come to a session with me i remember they were you know my mom's on my um left my dad's on my right and they were they were just fighting and fighting during the session and the, the therapist was trying to get control of it and then she asked my parents to step out and she said she wanted to talk to me alone and then when they stepped out i was like i was like i'm going to kill myself and she was like do you she, I think she said something about, um, do you mean that and stuff? And I was like, yes, I'm going to kill myself. I can't do this anymore. And she called my parents back in and she told them and she said, you need to take her to the hospital. And my parents were like, oh, she's just saying that she's not really going to do that. She's just saying that. And I was like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> and then, um, you know, they didn't want to take me. But she said, if you don't take her to the hospital, I'm going to call 911 and they're going to take her. And so my parents agreed to take me to the hospital and they were very upset, especially my dad. Um, My mom was more quiet. I remember my dad, he kind of believed like the stigma you see in the media. So he was like, oh, they're going to put you in a padded room. And they, they're, they're going to put you in a straight jacket and all this other stuff. And um, I remember being really, really scared. <laughs> but what happened was I went to the ER and the doctor there diagnosed me with depression. And I got sent to a psych unit and I was there for a week. It was like an adolescent psych unit at a hospital. And from that point on, it just seemed like things things just kind of got worse. Um it seemed like as time went on I started getting like worse and worse. There was like more I I had several, several suicide attempts and I've self harmed for years and it just seemed like there was no hope for me. I lost friendships left and right because just like the friends that I had, they just couldn't handle me and my symptoms. I was very emotional. There'll be times where I would be feeling fine and I'm having a good time with someone. And and then all of a sudden, you know, like it's like a switch. And and I just become depressed and suicidal. And I remember, um, I'm not friends with this person anymore, but I was hanging out with a friend and I was doing really well. And then all of a sudden I started like getting depressed (laughs) and turned to suicidal. And so my emotions were very all over the place all the time. I mean, it sounds like it was so hard. Yeah. And I had a lot of things going on because I also had like the PTSD, like struggle with an eating disorder. Um, At first it was like ED ED NLS, but it then turned into bulimia. And I had to go into treatment,
0: you know, a few times for for that as well. The bulimia. The one thing I'm hearing um, in your story that, you know, we hear often, but every time I hear it, it's like the first time, right? Because it's a new person and we're getting to know you, but like, you wanted to die a fucking lot, right? And I just wonder, like, what would little you think Like if little you had been at the hospital and someone would have said like someday you're going to be 25 and in your second year of college, and you're going to be on this podcast and you're going to talk to these ladies and you're going to say like, yeah, I wanted to die a lot. You might still want to die here and there or often, and you're going to show up and you're going to like talk about like, fuck man, I'm still here. Like that's a lot of grit to get here.
2: Yeah. Especially the college piece, because I graduated high school in 2015 and I went straight to a college. Well, let me go back to high school. Um, I was in the hospital so much in high school that I almost actually failed high school. And I was in a 12th grade. And I remember the school counselor was like, you got to bring up your grades, you know, a bit or you're not going to be able to graduate. And either in high school, either I was in a hospital or uh, I um, skipped school a lot too, I would wake up in the morning and my alarm would go off and then I was like, and I, and I was just saying to myself, I cannot get out of bed, I can't do this. So I would just sleep all day. And then my mom would come home and she'd be like, did you even go to school? And I was like, no. And, you know, she would get kind of frustrated, but it, that happened a lot, me sleeping. And so I almost failed high school. But I was able to bring up my grades a, a little bit, so I was able to graduate. Um, I graduated with a GPA of one point eight six, which is pretty low. And so, I I got accepted to college because they had a summer program. If you um, pass the program, basically you get admitted um, admission to the college. I did the program. I got all A's and then like, I got a B, but that was in the algebra class. So I'm not good at math anyway. <laughs> And so um, I was going and um, I started getting depressed again. And I remember um, I actually got kicked out of the school because um, they said something about me being a danger to myself and, and possibly others. I don't know why they said others, but basically it was because my suicidal thoughts and me talking to the school counselor and stuff like that. And then that didn't work out. I never completed a semester back then because I would start the school year. I feel like, I feel like I'm able to handle it and I'm able to do the semester and then I would get depressed and have all these symptoms and stuff. And then I would drop, drop out. So.
0: Can I just say like how inappropriate that they just kicked you out of school? Like they should have offered you more support. They should have tried to say like, Do you think maybe like we could pause on this semester and we can like refer you to some resources that could like really help stabilize you and then you can come back,
2: right, Lori? Like what the hell? And I actually experienced that a lot. Yeah, the school did that. And also I remember there was a point where I was going to this clinic and I had a therapist, I had a psychiatrist there and they were threatening to like stop working with me because they said, oh, you need more intensive therapy than we can offer. And then I had like a suicide attempt and they, uh, I remember I was in the hospital and the social worker came in and said that um, you, you need to find another clinic to go to because they um, they stopped services with you. With that situation, they didn't refer me to anybody else. They, they just dropped the services and that happened to me a few times. And so that's why kind of reminds me when I was at at that first college, they, you know, kind of cut the cord. It was like, okay. And they didn't give me any resources or they didn't refer me to anybody else or anything. So I had to kind of like, you know, I kind of was lost and I didn't have anywhere else to turn. So I had to go and find new people and stuff like that. So
0: yeah, I, as a therapist, that's just Highly unethical and inappropriate. Like, I know when clients aren't a good fit for me because their acuity is too high, their needs are too high than what I can offer. And, like, you know, once a week telehealth outpatient therapy. And I always approach it from the perspective of listen, I want to help you. I want to work with you. I think you're so rad. I think we can do some super great work together. What we need to do to do that is like you to go get some really intensive support and stabilize would you be up for you and I working together and the primary goal being getting you to more intensive supports? I'll see you up until you go start that new program. And then all you have to do is call me right back when you're done. Right. And then like Mm -hmm. we do the research, we do the referrals together. I call with them if that's helpful, but like I help facilitate that so that it's a smooth transition. You don't just cut someone loose; that's so inappropriate, right? (laughs) So, when did your borderline diagnosis come into play, and how was it for you to receive that? So, it—I was diagnosed when I was 18. I was in a
2: hospital, and the doctor there talked to the doctor that the psychiatrist I had at the time. He talked to my um, psychiatrist, and they—they. came to the conclusion that I had BPD and they printed out some information for me so I could learn about it. And I remember when I was reading the symptoms and stuff about it, it just like, it kind of changed my wor- world a bit. Cause I was like, Oh, this is what's going on. Like, it was like the moment of clarity. And I was like, Oh, so this is what's going on. This is what it is. It's kind of hard to explain I don't know. It just made me feel like I wasn't alone.
0: Yeah. I mean, both Lori and I have had that experience and all of the people that we know say that same thing of like, listen, it's not like I want to be handed this like highly stigmatized personality disorder diagnosis. But on the other hand, I want to know that I'm not crazy. I'm not manipulative. I'm not making this up. I'm not intentionally making people's lives hard. Like there's this very intense thing happening in my body and in my brain right now.
1: Yeah. It helps find community. It gives an explanation. And then it also helps with treatment, right? Because like, I mean, I assume for all three of us, I know for me, like I didn't know that emotion regulation was at the core of all of my issues because I was just like angry or anxious or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so no treatment was working because we weren't actually addressing the thing that needed to be addressed. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so Janelle, I'm just curious, like, so you were diagnosed at 18 You're 25 now. So that's seven ish years. Um, and what did, like what kind of treatment have you done? Have you done any, like, are you, you know, medication, therapy, counseling, like any of that kind of stuff?
2: I, well, besides the, um, you know, psych unit hospitalizations and stuff. I did go to a treatment center in 2018 um, called Timberline Knows It's in Illinois. And I felt like, I don't know, it didn't really help as much as I thought it would be. I was there for three months. I also, in 2016, I did ECT treatments and mm-hmm. that wasn't really helpful. And then... I'm trying to think what year was I think it was like 2020 I I started TMS treatments which is like they put this thing on your head and it
1: like sends like you know what's so so funny this is like the most random thing ever we we know one other person who's done TMS and we literally recorded with them an hour before now so it's transcranial I want to say it's transcranial muscle stimulation magnetic magnetic stimulation right yeah And just also for listeners that don't necessarily know, you said that you had done ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy. And so that's, that's Mm -hmm. interesting. Um, I know in Canada, it's still used and I, in the States, I presumably it's still used. um, But was that mostly for like treatment resistant depression or was that for BPD? It was for the treatment resistant depression. Okay. Yeah. And that didn't really work well. No.
2: Yeah. The TMS helped a lot. And I had to do the, um, ECT was because I was, I've been on so many medications and it just seemed like none of the medications would really work or they would work, but then they would stop working. And I just been, and some medications I've been on more than once, you know, because they'll try to put me back on it again. Like, oh, you know, let's put you back on the Abilify. And I'm like, this, this is my third time on Abilify and, you know, stuff like that. I do know. I think it was the last time I was in the hospital. They um, put me on this medication called. Well, you know, I'm taking Zoloft right
0: now. I'm taking Wellbutrin. Um, I used we to take love Risperol. Zoloft. We <laughs> love Zoloft and we hate Wellbutrin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so yeah, and I was on Risperdal, but they recently took me off of it. But um, the other medication that I'm taking right now is Clozaril. Um, the other name is clozapine. And I remember when I was in the hospital, you, they were in contact with my psychiatrist and they both, um, came to the decision of putting me on Clozaril. And they said something about, you know, this is a last resort type of medication and it's a, supposed to a help with like suicidal ideation and stuff like that. And so they put me on that and, um, you know, over time, it really, really h- helps. Um, it helps a lot with the suicide ad- ideation too, because I used to like, I used to be obsessive about the thought of suicide. I would just like think about it all the time, and it was just so consuming. Now it's like sometimes I would um have the thoughts, but I don't really like. Um, obsess over it or it's not as strong basically like it'll be like quick little passive thought but then it will go away so it helped a lot basically and I am glad I'm on the closet and then also the clinic that I go to now I've been going there since March 2020 and I've been in therapy twice a week ever since then ever since 2020 and I used to see my psychiatrist twice a week too. And now it's um, only once a week because, you know, I don't need the, you know, the the twice a week for psychiatry anymore. I feel like this is the best treatment team I've ever had, you know, and I remember in the beginning when I was going there, I was kind of, kind of like expecting um, them to, you know, give up on me basically, because I was like going from clinic to clinic to clinic being shuffled around. And I was expecting that. And so when I was, you know, starting at the clinic, like they would, um, I kind of was expecting them to give up on me. And if I like got, in the beginning, I was still going to the hospital a lot. And if I got sent to the hospital, like from a therapy session or something like that, I would kind of expect my therapist to give up on me. They didn't, which was good. And the therapist, um, the therapist I have, she's actually trained in like PTSD, like trauma and BPD patients. So, so she wasn't really like quick to give up on me, like
0: other therapists. Isn't that life-changing having a provider who's like, listen, you show up in all of your ways and I'm going to be here. I'm going to ride this out with you. Like just knowing that having that validation whether or not you believe it or trust it, but being told it, right? Like that makes treatment so much easier in my experience. Right.
2: I I kind of have um, more trust now in them, but in the beginning I was just waiting for them to um, cut me off. But now, you know, it's been two years. I now feel like more secure knowing that they're not going to just give up on me. And I know sometimes my therapist will kind of joke around i guess cuz like if if she is going to be she's going to be gone and she's like um you know next thursday i'm not going to be here um cuz i got to do this or appointment or something like that and she said like, but, but i'm not i'm not giving up on you i'm not leaving you and she said like, i'll be here m- monday <laughs> you know so that's kind of good too um i think another thing i should mention is i not as much as i used to but in 2020 I joined this like adult day program. Basically, um, it's like a psychiatric rehabilitation program type of thing, and you go there and have um, different groups you can sign up to. Um, some are fun, like um, one is called Fun Stuff, another one's called like Creative Expressions. But then they they have like educational groups too, like anger management, stress management, um, social skills, stuff like that, and so. Me me being a part of that program has helped a lot too. Um because like I'm assigned like an occupational therapist for that p- program. So the occupational therapist, she does like an assessment like with me once a week. Um, it used to be over the phone, but now she comes to my house and she just basically works on goals with me and stuff like that and just um keep track of my progress and things like that. So Yeah. So my, so my treatment team is basically my therapist, my psychiatrist, my um, occupational therapist. And sometimes at the clinic that I go to, I see a nurse practitioner, but that's mainly, that's mainly talking about like my health and nutrition and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that's pretty much what my treatment team is.
0: Sounds like you built a really good team. Sorry, Lori, go ahead. No, no. no. Yeah. That sounds, yeah, you're totally right. It sounds like a
1: great team. And I find it really interesting. Um, the occupational therapist piece, you're the second person that I've talked to in the last like month, who's really talked about the benefit of having an occupational therapist as part of their care team. So Mm -hmm. that's not something that I had really considered before. And I'm not sure why, to be honest with you, but, um, like that help with goal setting and like kind of reintegrating into activities. That's really awesome to have.
0: Yeah. And like, I wonder what it would have been like for you if you had had this same team when you tried college the first time, right? Like you said, like you would start the semester and then you wouldn't be able to finish. It's like, this is what happens when we have wraparound supports where the providers Mm -hmm. are all talking to each other and like, you're at the center leading the pack. Like, that's so cool.
2: Yeah. That's another thing that I like. My therapist and psychiatrist they're always in contact with each other. Now, other places I've been before, they were kind of like separate, but, um, you know, if I talk to my therapist and I tell her about something that happened or a a symptom that I had, she would communicate that with my psychiatrist and, you know, vice versa.
0: Um, yeah, I love that. We were in super feelers recently. Um, which is our peer support group, which you have to come to. We will send you the oh, link. Yeah. You will love it. Um, and there's, <laughs> is, is Maryland in the Midwest? It was on the East coast. East coast. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that. <laughs> well, I failed the Stace and Capitals test in the fifth grade actually. So I didn't know that, but, um, uh, we were in super feelers recently and we were talking, um, about like, particularly how people of color have a much lower likelihood of getting accurate diagnosis. Right. And one of our, um, one of our super feelers was saying like, you know, like black women or black people who are assigned female at birth are so underrepresented. And to me, it's like, we're talking about one of the most oppressed and subjected to so much trauma systemically, Mm -hmm. individually within communities. And we know that trauma is at the center of this diagnosis, this disorder, how it develops. So I'm just wondering if you're comfortable, maybe kind of talking about how you see, um, the intersection there for you. And if you're not comfortable, we can totally edit it out.
2: Um, I think there's like this, um, this, this expectation for women of color to be like this strong, independent, you know, um, like a strong, independent black woman and stuff like that. And if you show any emotions, you are, um, looked down upon as like weak or I kind of felt that pressure, but, um, and then there was like some stigma anyway. Um, I do know that um, growing up, most of the friends that I would make, they would um, be like Caucasian usually because they seem like the ones that, under- that understood me the most. Because um, like when I would make friends with other like like black, black girls and stuff like that, they would they would say, um, you know, oh you you act white or that's a white thing and stuff
0: like that. So. Um. I wonder, is that because of that emotional presentation that was hard for you to to close off, to shut down, to shove down? Yes. That's really an interesting perspective that I haven't heard before. Right. I mean, of course, being a white woman, like, um, Mm -hmm. but that is such an interesting perspective of like, being told talking about your feelings is a thing for white girls.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it's um it affects black men too. It's just like this worldview that is on us that um we can't talk about our feelings and stuff like that. It's just hard for us to talk about mental health in the community, in the black community, be- because you get looked down on. As, as being crazy and, you know, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting, that's really helpful for me to hear from you. Obviously, like, w- this is how human being human works, right? Is we're all trying to figure out how to relate. And mm-hmm. um, I can't relate to any kind of cultural perspective on um, race or ethnicity, but as a queer person who dates... All different bodies, I've been told like now that you don't have a wife, you know, you're not like it's like weird to see you with like a boy, or like you're not gay enough for the gays, but you're not straight enough for the straights. I wonder if that was kind of like a a similar feeling for you.
2: Yeah, I did experience that bit because you know, when I would try to um, befriend or like communicate with like. Um, other people that were black as well, they would, um, you know, I, I I heard the jokes all my life, even from my own, like my dad. You know, they would say, "Oh, you talk, you talk like you're white. You act like you're white. That's white music, white, white, white stuff like that." And then when I would try to be, be um, try to befriend or talk to people who are white, it just seemed like they um, were kind of like. Pushing me aside, there was just some kind of like blockage there. Like, it's been hard making friends over the years, not just because of the um race thing, but also mental health in general. It just it just was hard to um, make friends. And it's hard, it's even harder to keep friends.
0: Yeah, I love that you said that. I can make a friend in an instant, but keeping them, that's a Lori thing. Lori has invested her <laughs> whole life. In maintaining her friendships and I am just in fucking awe of it every day like <sighs> like I like I my best friend I met in the eighth grade we weren't fucking friends we weren't friends through high school like we <sighs> knew of each other but I hung out with the jocks and she hung out with the drama kids she was artistic and I was trying to like you know fucking keep up with the joneses kind of a thing and mm-hmm but she's my only connection to childhood. Like I love that I can say my best friend I've known since I was a kid, but we weren't Mm -hmm. friends. We didn't really talk. We knew of each other. We were cordial, but Lori has fucking deep rooted friendships. And I am constantly jealous of that. I wonder Lori, (laughs) if you have any insight to give in this making friends bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say like I had that issue a lot when I was younger. Like even in my psych records, like you can see that it says like she has issues maintaining friendships and stuff like that. Um I feel like for me, it's just like being you have to like really pay attention and like try and maintain friendships, which is really hard to do when we're like in such like chaos ourselves. You know what I mean? Because you're like adding another person and shit to your shit <laughs> and like that's exhausting um so yeah it's interesting for sure and i mean um, my mental health has lost me lots of friends and it's lost me friends temporarily who have since come back right like my best friend in the whole world like at one point in time basically said like i can't be friends with lori because it's too much and then luckily we were able to repair that but
0: um, it took years you know I think that's so beautiful that you would welcome that back in, because for me, I'm like, you're dead to me, like totally. yeah.
1: I mean, this was probably like thirteen years ago or something, like like a long time. And at the time, I was like, well, fuck you too then' and now she's like my sister and my friend like I but it took a long time to kind of repair that.
2: I wanted to mention how um people who, who like are in authority, like police officers, um, nurses in the hospital, psychiatrists, you know, mental health workers. I had a lot of bad experience with them over the years. Like I've had good ones. Like I had, you know, I might be in the ER and it's a really sweet, kind nurse, but I've had a lot of um, people say just, just like, um, terrible things. Um, saying stuff like, um, I'm attention-seeking, or um, I had a police officer, um, he called me dangerous, and, you know, I just, I've heard attention-seeking a lot, though, and um, it's just like, I don't know, it just seems like um, over the years, they just, I just feel like there there needs to be more training for the police officers, for nurses, stuff like that. Um, I've had like paramedics, you know, say to me, um, that, uh, you know, I was lying or something like, if it was like a suicide attempt, they would say I was lying. I'm like, no, I'm serious. And, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just been, um, a stressful journey with that because, um, you know, people weren't, weren't always like nice about it. And I've, I've got called crazy before too. And, um, I I would have like a nurse say something like, Oh, you're playing games with us. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Or they'll say I'm milking it or, you know, just called dramatic, um, <laughs> all kinds of stuff.
0: Yeah. You know, what is so interesting about this is like, this whole idea of demonizing attention seeking just really grinds my gears because here's Mm -hmm. the deal. We are literal pack animals, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. humans exist in groups for a reason because we need each other to survive. So like this idea of attention seeking, it's like, we need attention. We need to be We need to be validated. Are we not allowed to ask for that when we need it? And what greater time do we need that support from our community than when we want to die? Like that, that whole demonization of that fucking bothers me because... You're allowed to want attention and need attention and need security without being called attention seeking. And these Mm -hmm. motherfuckers, if they only knew the inner fucking war you were fighting that resulted in those behaviors that they deem, quote unquote, attention seeking. Like, I just have very little tolerance for it. I just wish people could fucking walk a mile because they wouldn't make Mm -hmm. it a quarter mile sometimes is how I feel. like. Mm -hmm. Like, I will show you attention-seeking, motherfucker. And I promise you, it doesn't <laughs> look like this. <laughs> that's the, I think that's like
2: one of the um, most fr- frustrating things I've been called, the attention-seeking, because um, it makes me feel invalidated. Like, you know, it just makes me feel like they're like minimizing my problem. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. I just want to be a person that says like, we don't see you as attention seeking. We see you as a human who's trying to stay alive and get their needs met. And Mm -hmm. there's a whole group of super feelers that would fucking love to validate that for you as well. So like, Mm -hmm. we're going to, we're bringing you in, we're bringing you into our little group (laughs) and you're going to love it. Um, and they're going to love you, but what do you think is the most important takeaway for people in hearing your story like what do you really want to kind of drive home for people
2: BPD has the potential to improve and there's people that um I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I'm completely recovered from BPD but there are people who get treatment enough to to where they don't meet the criteria anymore, and when I when I look back at all the experience experiences I've had, especially like like my symptoms, like I, I um I feel like I've improved a lot because I used to be really really chaotic and out of control and doing all kinds of like just n- not healthy things. I mean, I still experience like symptoms and stuff. I feel like it's such a huge difference. And my therapists and psychiatrists were saying, you know, I'm making progress and I didn't see it at first, but now I'm starting to see it because I'm not in and out of the hospital. I was almost always in the hospital and it seemed like treatment providers were so quick to admit me. Like, even if I just said I had suicidal thoughts, but you know, I didn't have any plans or anything they would admit me or like, a couple of times, like my um, parents or my mom would admit me, they'd be like, oh, pack your bag. And, you know, I remember at one point, um, they would say that my treatment isn't inpatient, it's an in outpatient because I have BPD and it, it needs to be treated with a therapist outpatient. Not inpatient, Because inpatient was kind of like wasting time, you know? So I feel like the treatment that I've had outpatient for the past two years, Um, The intensive therapy to twice a week helped tremendously. And and I'm saying all this to say that you can improve and BPD is treatable. It's not a a death sentence. It can get better. If you get the right treatment, like DBT, especially DBT, if you get the right treatment, it can get better. And I expect even a year from now for me to be even more in my recovery
0: and progress. Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful takeaway. And, um, you know, that's like for us, what this podcast is all about is like showing people who don't believe that remission or recovery or reduction of symptoms or whatever you want to call it who don't believe that treatment for borderline personality disorder is possible. And we are, you know, Lori has collected hundreds of pieces of data. We have collected so much qualitative stories and data supporting that. It doesn't have to look like this forever. Y'all like, I'm at the point now where it's almost more distressing to me to have moments of chaos because I'm not used to it anymore. And I'm like, damn, this used to be a Tuesday. And now it's like, my life is over. Fuck man. And in the beginning of
2: like my therapy at the clinic that I'm at now, I, it actually felt uncomfortable. Like um, me not being in and out of the hospital, me not being like, you know, chronically suicidal and self-harming and just doing all these outlandish things, and me especially me me not um being in the hospital all the time it felt uncomfortable you know it felt unusual because um that's what I was used to my life was oh you know every month or so or every other week I'm in the hospital but then the um, stability and progress that became comfortable so now um if I were to like go back to that and I was going in and out of the hospital and, you know, going through all of these, all these chaotic situations, that would be uncomfortable now, you know? So I became comfortable now with
0: stability, you know, treatment, things like that. It's a really beautiful place to be. Well, my friend, any last thoughts, Lori, any last thoughts, questions? No, it's just so nice to get to know you and I
1: really appreciate your story and it's just so interesting that we literally just recorded about T- TMS? Yeah. TMS literally an hour ago and then here's a second person saying that like this is so beneficial for them. So that's just like really cool and kind of like a, a little bit of a hint of maybe we should all try it for real.
0: Well, Janelle, thank you so much. We can't wait to have folks listen to your story and just a tiny bit about your journey and just know that like um, it it's a big, scary world out there. And I know most of us feel alone in it often, but you have us and we love being in community with Hi friends, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you and we'll see you next time.